Well, good morning once again. Uh, you know, you sing a song like that. We sing the words, Jesus, thank you. And it just seems so inadequate, doesn't it? We're expressing our heart's desire to God. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ to come to this earth to die in our place as sinners. Jesus, thank you. <laughs> and in some ways, it just seems like it falls short. Like our whole life, as Grady prayed this morning, our whole life should be a thank you to the Lord for what He has done for us. And so He's given us this mechanism to communicate with Him. And so we do in worship this morning, we say thank you. We're here because we thank Him. <laughs> for what he has done for us. Let me invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Acts. This past week, we began our 10-week summer series on the church by looking at the church's master. And in my estimation, it's the only right way to start a series on the church, by first establishing whose church it is. And I think it was clear as we looked at God's Word last week that Jesus is the Lord of the church. Kurios in the Greek, meaning master. He is the Lord and master of the church, which is a living organism made up of all the redeemed of God. And we think of the church age as the period between the giving of the Holy Spirit here in Acts chapter 2 all the way up to the coming of Jesus. And I love the descriptors in Scripture. Jesus is not only referred to as the Lord of the church, he's also said to be the chief cornerstone, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. 1 Corinthians 3.11 tells us that not only is he the chief cornerstone, but he is indeed the foundation of the church. And Ephesians 5.23 reminds us that he is the head of the church. And because he is all those things, it is incumbent on us as the church to obey him. Because he's our master. We are his servants, his slaves, doulos in the Greek. And so whatever it is that he says about his church and how it should function, that is exactly what we are to carry out. No questions asked because he is our master. And so with that established, this morning we want to consider the church's makeup. In other words, what makes up a church? What constitutes a local church? Now last week we did take some time to establish the difference between the universal church and the local church. And so because all the epistles were written to a local church or to someone in a local church, our focus for the series is how the local church is supposed to function and what is our role in that function. So we take it one step further from thank you, Jesus, thank you, thank you for what you have done for us in redeeming us from the due penalty of our sin, purchasing us out of the slave market of sin, and then how does that thank you translate to the Christian life? Well, it translates to our involvement in his plan A. His only plan for us as New Testament Christians is for us to live out the thank you through 
the local church. You know, there's always much to learn from the past. But as is clear in Scripture, we don't live in the past, right? We don't live in the past as Christians. We learn from the past. We live in the present, and we look forward to the future. This will age me a little bit. When I was a junior in college, Bible college of all things, in 1984, Bruce Springsteen, the boss, launched a new album that was entitled Born in the USA. Many of you know that uh, album. It's transcended time. It's one of the most popular albums ever recorded. And one of the popular songs on that album was a song called Glory Days. You remember that song? It's a song about reflecting back on when things were good, when things were as we expected, the glory days. And there's a lot I could say about this because I I wouldn't mind a return to a modicum of morality and the social graces and protocols of the past where there uh, was a measure of respect for folks in authority over us, a basic decency in society. But unfortunately, those days are long gone. We are now living in a cesspool of sin, a Romans 1 culture on steroids. And I know man has been sinful from the beginning of time, But there's been a noticeable downgrade in the past 10 or 15 years in our world that we live in. And as I have talked to folks about the glory days, what I have found is to most Christian people, the glory days in their minds were the years when they were raising their families in the church. And so I guess with their definition in mind, because we have so many young families in our church, You, according to their definition, are perhaps living in your glory days. But the sad thing for me is to hear from folks who speak so glowingly of their so-called glory days where they used to be engaged with their local church and now they rarely engage or they barely engage. They haven't perhaps chucked the church Altogether, but the church is much less a part of their lives than it once was. And that is very sad. That is very sad. And it certainly isn't pleasing to the Lord of the church. And because of this, I have a deep burden to come alongside pastors and churches amid this downgrade and help them to encourage and to edify pastors and churches because the church is being minimized and trivialized like never before. So in hopes of sharing the absolute need for the church in the life of every Christian, this morning we want to consider the church's makeup. In other words, what makes up a local church? What are a local church's essential components. And so that is our mission for this morning. And with that goal in mind, there's no place that is better to look at this in all of Scripture and to begin to answer these questions than to take a look at the inauguration of the church at Jerusalem. So let me set the stage for what we want to consider from the book of Acts this morning. 
The book of Acts is a history book. It's a history book that was written by Luke, who was not only a doctor, but he was a very careful historian. And his purpose, and the Lord's purpose, in the canon of Scripture for this history book is for the New Testament Christian to look back at the inauguration of the of the church and to see how it's developed and grown over time. So essentially, the book of Acts lays out the ministry of the apostle Paul in chapter the apostle Peter in chapters 1 through 12 and then in chapters 13 through 28 it covers the ministry of the apostle Paul including his three missionary journeys. It's a wonderful book of history. And as we read the book of Acts, we find the historical details of Paul's relationship with various churches that he started and he eventually writes to. And those letters that he writes to are referred to as the Pauline epistles. As you know, Paul wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books. His epistles were all written to local churches or to men who were in local churches or were pastoring local churches. All of the epistles are instructions to the local church, of which we, as New Testament Christians, are a part. So let's begin to look at the circumstances surrounding the launch of the church. So we're going to start right at the beginning here of this historical narrative, and we want to start in chapter 1 and verse 1. So follow along as I read Acts chapter 1. The first account I I composed Theophilus, he's referring to the gospel of Luke there. So the first account that I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, I want us just to consider this a passing question in Scripture, but this was the understanding of the apostles, that there would be an earthly kingdom. And they're asking him, is it now, is it at this time that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father had fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? 
This Jesus who had been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And by the way, a Sabbath day's journey is like a, it's like a half mile. So the Mount of Olives faces the Temple Mount, which is in Jerusalem. It's about a half a mile. It, it's, a, it's a big ravine between the Mount of Olives where Jesus ascended up into heaven. It's a big ravine. And at the bottom of the ravine is the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed the night before he was betrayed. So it, it is a historic area. The Mount of Olives faces the, the Temple Mount area in Jerusalem. It's about a half a mile from the Mount of Olives to the Temple Mount. Verse 13, And when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were saying, and that could be the same spot that they had the Lord's Supper, that is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and then Judas the son of James, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Notice here that Jesus tells them to stay in Jerusalem because something big is going to happen. Jesus had talked to them about this prior but not in great detail, only that there was something involving the Spirit that was going to happen. And so this is a statement by Jesus to tell his apostles to stay put, stay in Jerusalem. Something big is about to happen. And so they go back to the upper room, and the disciples of Jesus have a meeting. Well, in verses 15 through 26, we find the apostles casting lots to determine who would replace Judas, who was an apostle in name only because he was the one who betrayed Jesus. And by the way, just about Matthias, a little side note, I'm of the opinion, I wouldn't die for my opinion on this, but I am of the opinion that while Matthias was a good, godly man, the apostles jumped the gun in his selection. And it was actually Paul who was actually the 12th apostle. But all that's for another day, and I'll talk more about why I believe that some other time. But this brings us then to Acts chapter 2 and the launch of the church as we know it. So let's go to chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And so the males would go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And so there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are there. And suddenly, while they are there in one place, there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house. He's referring to the upper room. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, meaning the apostles. So this is, this is the 
the, the, the raining down of the Spirit of God first on the apostles, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now these other tongues, and we've gone through this uh, several times as we have talked about these apostolic sign gifts, and in particular uh, tongues, the Greek word for tongues in the New Testament is glossa or glossolalia. These are known languages. Known languages by the hearer, unknown from the speaker. It was a way for these men to be able to speak the gospel to all of these different cultures at the same time, and they would hear, their, they would hear it in their own language even though the apostles had never studied their language. This was a supernatural occurrence. But they're known languages, not ecstatic speech, not mumbling and bumbling and rolling of the tongue as we see today. These were known languages, these tongues. Verse 5, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven, And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together, and they were bewildered because each of them, and here it is, each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed. Well, I would be amazed. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking all the mighty deeds of God, and they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to other, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. They're drunk. These people are all drunk. They're crazy. They're over-celebrating. And this is the result of what they see. Well, after all this, Peter, he stands up before this massive crowd And he preaches the most powerful gospel sermon recorded in the New Testament. And look at this, beginning in verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. 
The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So you want to know how all this unfolded. I mean, we have the historical account of how all this transpired. It is interesting here, just side note, Verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And so you see the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God will happen. The sovereign decree of God will be accomplished. God, before the foundation of the world, has decreed what will take place. And as it relates to his son, this all played out exactly according to the plan of the Father. But the people who put him on the cross were not exonerated, right? They were not given a pass just because this was the sovereign decree of God. So we look at it in our own lives and we say, we've, we've sinned against this person or we've sinned doing this or we've sinned doing that. We don't get a pass for our sin, even though within the, in the plan of God, this our sin did not surprise God one bit. He's either prescribed it or permitted it, but he is in complete and sovereign control over all things. This is the God who sent Christ to the earth to come and to die in the place of sinners like us. When we sing Jesus, thank you, Jesus carried out the sovereign plan of God. The will of the Father was done, but these people put him to death. And they are responsible for their sin. So look at what happened. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Right? He's Lord of the church. He's Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. This Jesus who you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And for the promise for the promises for you and your children and for all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. In verse 41, So then, those who had received the word, received the gospel message, 
the preached gospel message from Peter. So those who had received the word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Now, I just want to make the point before we get into the passage for this morning. I just want to make the point that the book of Acts is not intended to be prescriptive. You understand what I mean by that? So in other words, just because some things happened, some of these grand miracles that God did through the apostles, some of the tongue speaking that we see in the book of Acts, there was a great change in the economy of God. The Spirit of God now was coming down and permanently residing in the hearts of those who had repented of their sin. There were drastic changes. And so we see other things happening that basically puts God's stamp of approval on what the apostles are saying. So the, these apostolic sign gifts were the authentication of their message. But the book of Acts is not prescriptive. That's the epistles. The epistles are prescriptive. They're commands for the church. They're commands for believers in the church age. The book of Acts' intent is to be descriptive. This is what happened. This is what happened. Just because something happened in the book of Acts does not make it prescriptive for us. This is where our charismatic friends have gone off the rails and are constantly pointing back to the book of Acts. Well, see, this is what happened there. Yes, that is what happened, but there's no prescription that that will happen now with the closed canon of Scripture. The apostles and the prophets are gone. They did what their job was, which was to lay the foundation for the church, but now they're gone. There are no living apostles. There are no living prophets. We have the completed canon of Scripture. God has spoken. We don't need prophets anymore to speak on behalf of God because we have the clear, closed canon of Scripture. So the book of Acts is descriptive and not prescriptive. Okay? So all this brings us to what we want to consider today, which is the church's makeup. This is how it happened. This is how it began to flow early on. So let me read to you verses 42 through 47. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So this comes off of verse 41. 3,000 people came to faith in Christ because of the sermon that Peter preached. God worked in the hearts of 3,000 people. They trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sin. The Spirit of God indwelled them. They became Christians, believers in Jesus. They were baptized. 3,000 people. And so they began to form what we know today as the church. It's the infancy, the very beginnings of the church, but notice what was important to these people. 
They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they were beginning to sell their property and possessions and were sharing them with the group and as everyone might have need. Day by day, continually, with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This was the infancy of the church, but what a grand and glorious time. (laughs) Jesus, uh, who had ascended up into heaven and had promised that he would send the paracletus, the helper, the helper has come. He now is indwelling believers and the church is on fire. They are going around and telling everybody that will listen that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. And it says here that their number day by day, was growing as to those who were saved. So let me just say, because I mentioned the the descriptive, prescriptive thing, so we see here that they basically began to share their property and possessions with everyone. So all of them, they all sold their stuff, and they just lived together to make sure that everyone had exactly what they need. Well, this isn't a prescription for the church that we must do that. It's descriptive in the sense that we can understand why they did that. And the heart of it. Not that we have to do that, but the heart of what they did. And so we can see the priorities of the first church in Jerusalem And when we couple this with the direct teachings from the epistles, which are directed to the church and prescriptive to the church, we get a well-laid-out blueprint as to the composition and components of the local church. And so, while the first church was brand new in its infancy, their initial priorities appear to be spot on, right? So this morning, we want to consider the church's makeup And I want to give you four essential components of a local church, okay? So the first is that it is a local community of the redeemed gathered. It is a local community of the redeemed gathered. So perhaps the first thing to mention, and it should be obvious, is that the local church is for believers, Right? That's the very definition of the church, the ecclesia, uh, the called out ones. Ek, meaning out. Kaleo, meaning to call. And so the church is composed of called out believers, those called out by God for salvation. And all that's clearly seen here in Acts chapter 2 that we just read. So the church gathered is centered around the proclamation of the authoritative word of God. Remember at this time, The epistles were not written, and so that's why they centered their attention around the apostles' teaching. 
which later would be inscripturated. And so they gather together and center their attention as new Christians on the authoritative Word of God. The responsibility of the church is to worship the one true living God and to edify the local community of saints. It's the church scattered that is to evangelize their communities for the sake of Christ. But when the church is gathered, it is to worship the Lord and to edify the saints through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And we'll cover more on this later in our series. But, but second, there's no mistaking the absolute priority of the local church in the life of the Christian. Right? There's no mistaking here. Peter preaches this powerful sermon at the Feast of Pentecost. 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. They're baptized. The church is born. And as we said last week, the universal church and the local church were one and the same initially. But of course, that didn't last long because these new, newly regenerated believers told others of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, many of whom went back to their own communities after being in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And no doubt God used these very same people to launch local churches in their own cities. But notice here that those who made up this local church were not only dependent on one another, clear, they craved being together. Verse 42 says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and what? To fellowship. Which means they did this as they gathered together. Now look at verse 44. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. All these new believers, they banded together. They're looking out for the needs of their fellow church members. They actually met with one another every day, the text says. They had meals in each other's homes. They saw the need to have other local believers in their lives. These are the people they did life with. All of that, all of that is reaffirmed in the New Testament epistles. All of that is God's design for us as well. I think about back in my own life. I had to make a conscious decision who I was going to do life with. I went to a public school, a large public school, not as large as Kathy's, which was five or 6,000 students, but my high school was somewhere around 2,000 to 2,400 students. I was a, an athlete. I played baseball, basketball, and football. I had a lot of friends in school, and I spent a lot of time with these people. But I chose to do life with the kids in my youth group. That's who I did life with. Those are the kids, none of them athletes. Oh, they had an affinity for sports, but that's who I chose to do life with. Because those are the people that knew me, and I knew them. And we grew up together from the time we were in the nursery <laughs> And we loved one another. And we cared for one another. All of the one another's in the New Testament are all aimed at the local church. This is why the writer of Hebrews is so clear on the absolute priority of the church gathered. 
Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. You can stay in Acts 2. Let me read this to you. And let's consider, let's consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds, not abandoning our own meeting together, as is the habit of some. So by the time Paul, if Paul wrote Hebrews, by the time whoever wrote Hebrews wrote this, there were already people who were abandoning their meeting together. So let's consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds, not abandoning our own meeting together, as is the habit of some people, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the, the day drawing near. So like this first church in Jerusalem, how in the world are we, as New Testament Christians, to encourage one another if we minimize meeting together? Just on a practical level, how can we possibly do that? And sadly, why I have so much of a passion to help pastors who are struggling and leaving the ministry by the thousands and churches that are folding or having all kinds of issues and concerns, one of the reasons why I am so passionate about this is I believe that many folks have just caved to the culture's viewpoint that the church is an event. And I want you to think about this. It's just a place we go to. I've been asked so many times over the years, and probably you have as well, by well-meaning people, what church do you go to? Right? Have you heard that? What church do you go to? And I know what they mean. And I'm not trying to beat people up that say that, but I always answer them by saying I am a member of Grace Life Church. Which means I'm all in with the people at Grace Life. We just don't go to church. We are the church. And most of you know that I haven't always been a, a pastor. For 11 years, I worked in a secular workplace environment. And at the same time I was doing that, I was coaching high school basketball. Those were my jobs. And at the same time I was coaching and working I was still a husband to my wife and a father to my kids who were all active in extracurricular activities, but the church was always our family's priority. My job took a backseat to the church. My coaching took a backseat to the church. Our kids' activities took a backseat to the church. Our identity shouldn't be in what job we have, but in Christ alone that we just sang about this morning. He is our master. He sets our priorities. Look, I know what it's like to be dead dog tired and want nothing more than just to sleep in on a Sunday morning. I get it. But I don't ever remember doing it. We were an active family too. And we had people asking us all the time to do things. But church was our priority. It, it, if it conflicted with being with our church family, we declined. And I love those years. I remember those years very vividly. I love those years in the church serving as a lay elder and a teacher and a ministry leader 
having people in our home because we wanted to be a part of people's lives, praying for folks, helping folks with whatever they needed. You know, what, what's often missed from verse 25 of this passage that I just read in, verse, in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, it's the last part of it. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. He starts out by saying, some of you have already chucked the church. You've already chucked the priority of meeting together as the church. And he says in the last part of it, all the more. Not to neglect the meeting together with the saints of God. All the more as you see the day drawing near. He's talking about the Lord's return. The writer of Hebrews is saying, be with God's people more, not less. Encourage one another more, not less. And I think from that time until now, the encouragement that we need is so much greater than during that era of time. And I get it. I mean, all things have changed, and there's all these new things happening. People lost their jobs and their families because of their relationship with Christ. And so I do get all of that, but there weren't all the distractions that there are now. I mean, there are distractions everywhere we turn. Be with God's people more, not less. Encourage one another more, not less. And so the first essential component of a local church is that it is a local community of the redeemed gathered. Second, it's a local community of those who practice the ordinances. Again, here in verse 42, we find that the early church set a priority to continually remember what Christ had done for them on the cross of Calvary. It was the basis for their relationship with one another. So they did this by partaking of two elements, the bread and the cup. And we will be partaking of the Lord's Supper here in a moment. So I'm not going to read the passage. I'll wait till then. But the bread and the cup were a part of their worship together as a local church. The other ordinance, which we see practiced here is believers baptism and by the way we call them ordinances rather than sacraments because a sacrament is a supernatural means of grace the taking of communion is memorial in nature it's a time of remembering what christ did for us on the cross of calvary the elements are symbols they're not the literal body and blood of christ But if a local church doesn't partake of the elements to memorialize the sacrificial and substitutionary death of Jesus, it's not a true church. Not a true church. Third, it is a local community led by biblically qualified male elders who preach the Word of God. It's a little long. A local community led by biblically qualified male elders who preach the Word of God. Of God. And we could go on to say that their authority is the Word of God. By the way, the first time elders are mentioned in the book of Acts is in chapter 11 and verse 30. So, in other words, it, it took some time for the local churches to get organized with the proper biblical offices. But when we think of this office of elder, 
in the church. First Timothy 3, Titus 1, they give a clear set of qualifications for those who may serve as elders in the local church. The, the words elder, pastor, bishop, overseer, they're all used interchangeably in the New Testament. And if you notice, there's always a plurality of elders mentioned for a local church. So sitting around someone's living room talking about Jesus or the Bible does not constitute a local church. A local church has biblically qualified elders that are accountable to the Lord for the spiritual welfare of the church. Listen to, the, to this charge to elders from the Apostle Peter, the same one who preached this amazing sermon at Pentecost. Later, when he wrote 1 Peter, the first epistle that Peter wrote, he said this in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble." By the way, for all of the Pride Month advocates, God's opposed to the proud. God's opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And so in God's design, the elders are under shepherds of the chief shepherd and are accountable to him and to each other. On the other hand, those in the church are accountable to their elders to obey them and submit to them. It's clear in Scripture. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey your elders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they may do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. You see, Jesus has delegated His authority to under-shepherds in the local church. Now, I'm running out of time, and I, I want to I say this because it's something that I've thought about all week. Why do we see such a minimization of the local church? And I think part of it is because there are so many churches. So follow me here. Back in biblical times, there was the church at Colossae. There was the church at Philippi. There was the church at Thessalonica. There was the church at Ephesus. And on and on and on we can go. All of the people who made up the church in those localized cities were all accountable to the elders. While they probably were meeting in different homes, there was a structure in each city for the church. Well, now, if people get their shorts in a knot and, and they want to do whatever they want to do, then they'll just go to the church on the corner. There's no accountability. There's no accountability to the eldership of the church. If we don't get our way, we're going to go over here and we're going to give our money to that church. And we're going to start going there. That's not God's intent. 
Now, there are legitimate reasons to leave the church, but they're all sin-related. Moral failure, heretical teaching, acquiescing to sin in the church. There are legitimate reasons to leave a local church, but where were these other people going to go? They were part of the church at Colossae, and something happens that they don't like. And by the way, isn't that what submission is? Presupposing that we're not always going to agree on things? Do you have a job? Do you have a boss? You don't always agree with the boss, but you must obey the boss. You must submit to the boss. He's going to give an account to the CEO of the company. You see, there's structure, even in the church. And so what I think we have today is we have this idea that the church is an event. We're going to go to the church. Rather than being the church, we're going to go to church. And if we don't like something, then rather than doing things God's way and working things out God's way, and if there's sin involved, recognizing it and and repenting of it, we'll just go to another church. Because how many churches do we have in our area? Hundreds. Hundreds. We're not going to be accountable to this local church because we don't like it, what they're saying. We're going to go to this one. And if we don't like that, which they probably won't, they'll end up going to that one. And then they won't like that, and then they'll end up going to that one. And there's a plethora of options. Which brings us then to the fourth component. A local community who loves people enough to call them out on their sin and practice church discipline. A church that doesn't recognize sin and deal with sin is not a church. It's not a church. This is born out of the responsibility that the Lord gives not just to the elders, but to the entire church. I mean, Matthew 18, 17 through 20, gives this model of confrontation, right? How we can go to a brother privately. We can talk to them about their sin. If they fail to repent, we take one or two others with, them, with us. And if they fail to repent, then what are we to do? Well, people that are in unrepentant sin can't be in the church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. And so it's very clear, but sometimes very convoluted and complicated when this kind of stuff happens. There's no cookie-cutter way of going through the process of confrontation on sin. Sometimes it takes months. Sometimes it takes a year. Sometimes it takes forever. Not every sin situation in the church is the same. And there are often twists and turns in the process. We have to try the best we can to obey the Scriptures as it relates to these issues. Paul wrote to Titus. He said, look, remove a divisive person after a first or second warning, knowing that such a person has deviated from what is right and is sinning, being self-condemned. So what is all of our responsibility as it relates to these issues of people that 
could be in unrepentant or are in unrepentant sin. Well, Paul gives an example in Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, keep your eye. See, he's talking to the church. I urge you, brothers and sisters, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching you have learned and turn away from them. For such people are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Look, I have oodles more. I, I cut this back. I think these are the four essentials of a local church. The church's makeup. What, what, what makes up a local church? First, it's a redeemed community. Second, it must practice the ordinances. Third, it must be led by qualified male elders who preach the Bible. And then fourth, it must confront and discipline unrepentant sin. I love the church. I love our church. I'm burdened for the church. I always tell pastors when I talk to them, and I talk to a lot all the time, and I hear what's going on in churches. It's hard. It's tough. It's difficult. I always tell them our church is on the good side of all these things. Praise God. Our church is on the good side of all these things. What's the church's makeup? Well, this is clear, not just from what we see here in the inauguration of the church, but the perpetuation of it and through the epistles that we'll concentrate more of our attention on as we continue to move through. So let me pray, and then we're going to turn our attention to the elements this morning. And uh, if you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, I'm going to pray first. Lord, thank you again for our church. Thank you for these truths in your word, even if sometimes they make us a little jittery. Lord, we want to thank you for all that you have done for us and given to us. And as we live out our lives, that's how we ultimately thank you, is by being obedient to your truth. It's one thing to say it, it's another thing to do it. And as we said last week, you, your son said very clearly, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And thank you for the commandments that you've given to us in your word. And we have so many of them to look at in the future about how we're to interact with one another in the body and encourage one another and challenge one another and come alongside of one another to edify one another and serve one another and love one another. And Lord, we just thank you that you've been so clear with us in your word. So now as we turn our attention to what Christ has done for us, I pray that this time will be special in our lives as well as we look back, as we memorialize what Jesus has done for us. Saving us, establishing His church, and allowing us to live for Him. We thank You and praise You in the name of Jesus. Amen.